right, welcome back to the pod of DC, everybody. I'm your host, Rick Bernstein. I hope you're having a fine, fine day. I am sitting with Mr. Brad Perry, a friend of mine. According to Facebook, I think you and I only go back 12 years, Brad. Is that, does that sound about right? <laughs> Yeah, not quite. Maybe uh, since we were 12, actually probably since we were 10. It's. I think it's right in between 10 and 12 because you were a little, I remember you were always a little older, weren't you at the end of 75 and that when your birthday is? Yeah, but we met in fifth grade, I think. We met in fifth grade. So we're coming up, I think on our 33rd friend anniversary uh, this That's fall. Right. That's right. This fall, Mr. Ward's class. That's right. So we, we've known each other, I mean, really through the formative years, then you and I ended up coinciding in college, still in, in Virginia, though, yep. um, over the years. So a lot has happened in that time period. It has. But <laughs> the, big, the big VA remains, remains stable. We pick up, you and I, in 1987. Where between 1975 and 1987, were we still in the same county, but just in different schools? Or where were you before then? I mean, yeah, I grew up always right around Fredericksburg, Virginia, first on one one county to the south. And then we moved right before kindergarten to Stafford, which is where I know yeah. you lived. Yeah, I think we just went to different elementary schools. And then in fifth grade, that's where we met. I don't know what it is about middle school for me as being kind of like a transformative time period. I mean, what was your what was your take on that? Because people look back on middle school as being such a difficult time because your hormones are starting to kick in and j- just about everything that is probably not great about being a kid and fitting in happens right. in middle school. What was your take on that whole time period? It was pretty formative. I mean, par- partly because that's probably the first time you-, you start kindergarten and you get kind of, you're thrown in with a bunch of kids you never met before. It's the first time, like it's beyond like the neighborhood kids or the, you know, the kids of your parents' friends. And then suddenly like now you're at this school with like all these kids and you get used to that after like five years. And then suddenly now here's like this whole new mix of kids that are combining in from other, you know, schools and combination of exciting because you're getting exposed to like these kind of different trends and music and just these different personalities, but also kind of scary. I didn't really have like a tight group in elementary school. I don't, I don't think most kids develop that yet until, until they get like closer to teenage mm-hmm. years. And like, I think you, like you and a, and a few other people at that lunch table in fifth grade is like, that was the first time I felt part of like a friend group that I would label that. That's so true. There's, there's two components of middle school to me that, that really, you know, kind of sum everything up. It's the bus ride back and forth and all the shenanigans that happened on the bus. And then that lunch table, like you said, I mean, just think about what that says, who you sit with, not even really understanding what the implications might mean. Just as a kid, you just kind of go wherever everyone else is going and just kind of figuring it out. And I don't honestly even remember how we all ended up sitting together. I remember the first day of fifth grade, I have like this really vivid memory. I knew a couple kids from elementary school, but I didn't, I wasn't like super tight with any of them. Uh, I remember seeing like a name plates or like name cards on all the desks. And uh, I remember seeing the name Ryan Geis and I was like, holy crap. We had met in like second grade and had become like really good friends <laughs> through of all things vacation Bible school, which is what my parents made me <laughs> okay, go to. Okay. <laughs> um, and he and I both like got got in trouble a lot there for uh, I think trading garbage pail kids, which were oh, yeah. considered an abomination in the eyes of Jesus, I suppose. 
But like, I remember his desk being like right in front of mine or right next to mine. And I remember just all of the like butterflies I had like instantly melted away. A, I didn't know his parents had moved back. They had moved to like Oklahoma. And so I was like, holy crap, like this really good friend of mine who like I haven't seen for like, you know, three years or two years or whatever, he's going to be sitting next to me. And I was like pumped. And, you know, he came in, we were like, dude. Oh, wow. And, and so immediately I had a friend in that class. I don't know how we all ended up gravitating, but we just did. And we just all ended up sitting together. There was like probably like seven of us at that lunch table, lip syncing to the Beastie Boys for like the talent show. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because that was a formative memory for me too in that middle school gymnasium. I mean, the one thing I will say about Drew, it felt very, you remember the movie Hoosiers? Yeah. And you remember, you remember those old gyms, right? Oh, yeah. With just, with that parquet or whatever floor that was. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. And, and in middle school, all of our big functions, right, were in that gymnasium. It was after school dances. It was the rallies, the rah-rah around selling chocolate bars and getting, oh. uh, getting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Getting prizes. I remember the talent show and I remember some of the individual acts other kids were doing, but that was what we did. I remember fifth grade, right? We had the tennis rackets, the wooden yep. tennis rackets. I mean, that's all I had in my garage. Tennis racket guitars, fight for your right to party and Paul Revere. You know, I don't know how we got away with the, some of the, you know, the lyrics for fifth grade, small town, Virginia, back to the future had come out. And I remember like doing the Marty McFly with my tennis racket <laughs> guitar. Yeah, it's funny, that movie too, and how formative that movie alone, Back to the Future, was when it came to exactly when he has the guitar, when he's skateboarding, and how relevant that was during that time, and how it influenced a lot yeah. of kids too to pick up boards. Was it was that the same for you? Because you were kind of in that skating scene in middle school. So at that point, like most kids, I asked for a skateboard after that movie came out. And actually, me and Ryan Geis both got skateboards for Christmas that year. But my parents thought it would be just like a flash in the pan and they didn't want to spend like $120 on like a legit board. So I got this like $30 Veriflex from like, you know, the A&M. <laughs> that movie is the reason we both bought the, or asked our parents to buy those boards for birthday or Christmas or whatever. Like Back to the Future is still what fueled my early, you know, kind of indirectly, my early ability to like really go deep into skating. I don't know what it was. I just, I, my balance was just never, I couldn't hang with you guys. You know, we'd have uh, birthday parties and get togethers and, <laughs> And all that. And I, I just, I was you yeah. know, a bike rider and, and that's how it is with my kids. Uh, we, we, we've got a scooter, no skateboard yet. I would think that would be cool. Is that something that you, I know you have a son, you want to uh, have him pick up? My older son enjoys skating. Just like he just kind of cruises around, learn how to do like Tic Tacs, is trying to learn how to Ollie. But, you know, I try not to force it on him either. Like if it's something like I've seen parents that try to kind of like force their hobbies, especially like skaters and musicians. They're like, yeah, that made me cool. And so I want my kid to be cool. And, you know, it's fine. It's up to them. That's how they raise their kid. But like my, my whole thing is I didn't get into this stuff because I was because I, I wanted to be cool. I really felt this like sort of indescribable pull toward skateboarding and, and a particular type of music. That was my particular life situation. I'm not going to like force those things on my kid. I want to, I want him to find his own version of those things. If by coincidence, he happens to also like, I'm going to provide the skateboard. And if he takes an interest in the skateboard, cool. But if not also cool mm -hmm. lately, he's been really into trying to learn how to Ollie and he's, he's been, been on it lately. He talked about being in the community of skating and, and the music that went along with it. I remember going to one of your birthday parties. It had to have been in fifth grade because it was right around that time because it, it came out in 86. But I remember buying you the cassette tape Raising Hell, Run DMC. <laughs> and that yeah. was, again, that's just when the Beasties broke in 86. You have Run DMC. It is so much of my identity and how I associate time periods and why I can remember things is basically based on the music from that time. That's kind of how I process it. What was kind of the foundational music in that skating community that you had then? 
back then, and I, I think there's still aspects of this now, but I think there was like a, a real particular time and place in the late 80s, early 90s, where music music and skating really went much more hand in hand, and, and especially a particular type of music, right? Not necessarily punk, although that was definitely part of it, but just underground music in general seemed to go with skating. And I think that's because this is before skating was accepted. This is before Tony Hawk was a household name. It was before the X Games were even like probably a spark of anyone's imagination. Skateboarding, like it was not cool to be a skater in 89. Brandon Witt's birthday party in like seventh grade, which you were you alluded to before, like something about that night, I needed to feel that that board under my feet. And it, it hadn't really taken hold of me yet. But that something about that night, I was just like, had so much fun. And it just was like this physicality that I hadn't really, like I played soccer and I played tennis and I never just felt this spark of of passion like I did mm. for skateboarding in that moment and then you just know you have to do it and so then you just start doing it and you fall in with a group of people and suddenly you're part of like a subculture and it becomes like you know part of your identity and I think part of that you know we're, we're doing something that is like people spit at us for we get run off by cops and teachers and everyone else you know there's something about that that, that underground music especially like punk rock really speaks to you know like mm. embracing being kind of an outsider and obviously like skating has like kind of an aggressive physical component to it that goes along well with both hip hop and, and a lot of underground rock, especially punk. And, and then you had skate videos, right? So like the mid eighties VHS kind of revolutionized the ability of these companies to, to actually document what their writers were doing mm-hmm. and push it forward as like an art form in a sport. Each video that came out, there was like new tricks being invented like constantly and like this guy's style versus that guy's style. And, and another big part of like all those skate videos back then was the soundtracks. Thrasher magazine had like this this uh, series of like tape compilations they put out called skate rock that kind of like embraced this idea and the soundtracks like i can remember santa cruz skateboards was a big company back then like one of the main ones they they had like this agreement with this really famous in underground circles record label called sst that was like it was like black flags record label black mm-hmm. flag being like you know one of the sort of inventors of, of hardcore punk tons of bands were on that label and and basically the sst roster of bands would would provide the soundtrack for for santa cruz skate videos and so you would just get exposed to like descendants black flag blast uh minutemen firehose like all these bands that, that that was a major point of exposure to a lot of those bands for me was was skateboarding and then also there was a there was a record shop or a, a cd shop because that's the era we were in and it was a specialty one in downtown fredericksburg called cd jungle that had been opened by this guy it's a really sweet guy um had moved down from DC and he had been part of like the punk scene in DC, which is like one of the more legendary punk scenes. And well, no, absolutely. Bad brains. And, yeah. Bad yeah. brains, minor threat, Fugazi later on. And he was really awesome about like, cause I would come in and ask if he could order stuff and he'd be like, yeah, you know, if you like that, you might also like this. And so he would like, you know, open me up to bands that I wasn't getting through skateboarding, but fit just as well with that kind of stuff. That's when you still pass around mixtapes. I remember there was this dude who was my tennis teacher in seventh grade. <laughs> or eighth grade or something. And he was like this secret punk. And he found out that I was into like a couple of bands and he was like, oh man, you got to hear that guy's in another band now called this. And he made me like this mixtape and got to thank that guy. He opened me up. He's the reason I heard this band Operation Ivy that I still love to this day. You know, like all these weird ways you discover music. There was no Spotify. There was no, you weren't seeing things on Instagram stories. Obviously it was much more word of mouth and just kind of looking for people who seem like they're going to be into that stuff. And then the cool people looking for you to pass it on. 
uh, which which I thought was a really I mean, there's still like a culture around it. Right. Um, and especially in cities in New York, for example, there's like a really super popular underground like goth and industrial scene that just like it's just people who are like really into that. And I'm sure it's like that for like, you know, all sorts of genres. But I, I just the contrast between like Charlottesville, for example, where I lived for a long time, small college town, I, I would book shows and book all sorts of different sort of underground bands. And if there was a show happening that was like anything other than bluegrass or Dave Matthews worship, everybody, everybody was going to be there, whether or not their favorite thing was Depeche Mode or whether their favorite thing was Bad Brains, which are, you know, very different types of bands. It was like, cool, something that's just like underground versus in New York. If you want to, you can just go to nothing but like goth industrial dance nights or, or concerts, you know, like right. so it's kind of funny like that. Those, those pockets kind of still exist. And, and I got into a lot of that stuff too, because kind of simultaneous to getting into like punk and hardcore, which definitely was driven heavily by skating and, and also just the way I was feeling at the time. My parents' best friends, their kids were two and four years older than me. And so they were really into Prince and U2 and Madonna. And so, you know, and I looked up to them. I thought they were the coolest. I got into a lot of like 80s kind of pop stuff mm-hmm. way before even like really fully like understood I wanted to play music. I knew that there was this culture of cool and awe, you know, around certain artists. And I think the first one that really prior to getting into skating or anything, the first the first band, so definitely the Beastie Boys, but the first band that really spoke to me probably around like sixth grade or so was was In Excess. I just loved that. Mm. And and In Excess has a lot of similarities with a lot of kind of just underground alternative. You know, they were never they were always like bigger than all of that from a popularity standpoint, but there's definitely connective tissue musically. And then also U2 and U2 definitely came out of, you know, new wave. I believe I remember reading something that they toured with like Susie and the Banshees at one point or something. Right. Like, um, when I used to DJ dance nights in Charlottesville, I would, I would always sneak in what you need. Cause it's just like, got such good energy. Yeah. I just, I still love that band. I always have a soft place in my heart for, for some in excess. That was the first band that I really like went full on fanboy for. Like I got like a door poster of the, the mm-hmm. kick album cover and I, I wore out the tape within like a year and had to buy another tape. The, the other thing too, about, about that, that kind of era, you know, you had, you had like all the eighties kind of synth pop that came out of the early eighties and then the late eighties, you had like hair metal kind of taken over. But there was like certain artists that were figured out like a niche that didn't really fit either of those molds or like before Nirvana kind of came and, and Jane's Addiction and all those bands came and kind of blew everything up and, and reset. I give, you know, NXS and U2 like a lot of credit for figuring out this like mainstream alternative for lack of a better way to say it. They, they weren't on any kind of trend that yeah. was happening. They kind of just invented their own thing that just they brought people to them, to their sound, which I thought was cool. There's a band, there's a really popular band now actually called the 1975 that I hear a ton of similarities to NXS with, with some of their stuff, not all of it, but. It's funny you mentioned them. I've actually been a huge fan of 1975 for the last five plus years, six years. They had just uh, started to break overseas. So, you know, they're another one of those Manchester bands um, out of the UK with so many, you know, Smiths and it just goes on and on and on. I saw them at DC nine in DC. They were about a hundred people there. Yeah, that is a tiny venue to see that band. I've played that venue. (laughs) 
I know. And I want to get into that too, about, uh, you know, being a touring musician yourself. But um, I met Maddie Healy up on the rooftop and George, who's the drummer. And we chatted for a while. And I just, you know, I had heard Chocolate and a couple other songs. I was just like, there's a hook. There's something there that I just, I don't know what it is. But I remember texting my friends that night and saying, and I went by myself to see them. I said, guys, in a year or two, if this band isn't selling out arenas worldwide, I would be shocked. And sure enough, I mean, they they have just taken off. It They, they are are so easy to tear apart from a critic standpoint. It's almost, you could say it's kind of algorithmic a, a little bit, something about it. I don't know what it is. It's like I put my critics hat away. It, it's just great anytime music. So there's definitely like certain songs they have that I'm just like, oh man, like, yeah, it's similar to other stuff, but it's got its own kind of thing, which is cool. I mean, in rock music, that's about all you can hope for, you know, like all of rock music is derivative. <laughs> I, I, I can't really honestly think of another rock star friend of mine or someone that I've known for a long time who has been a working and touring musician. Yeah, I'm not a rock star, but I have done a lot of touring. So so tell us a little bit about that. So how did you take kind of this inspiration from the sounds of Beasties to NXS to Black Flag and Minor Threat and Bad Brains? And then what kind of hit you? Because you were in a band that I remember in middle school. Tell me kind of how that started and, and what came of it. So my friend, Ryan Geis and I, that I, uh, I think I talked about earlier, uh, he, he had moved, his parents had moved to like a different County one day, like one of us called the other one and we were just kind of catching up. I remember we were like, Hey, we should, we should get together. This is probably like late seventh grade, early eighth grade, maybe. And I was like, yeah, all right, cool. And, and I went over to his house. He was almost like scared to tell me he was found punk rock, but I had found punk rock through, through skate videos and through skate culture and just older kids, you know, at, at school and stuff. And, had, you know, was like really into it almost as an extension of that, but was also just discovering like a lot of punk music on my own, discovered a lot of the same bands that we loved. And then he also had discovered some other ones that pre-internet, like I didn't know about, and I had discovered some that he didn't know about. It was like, suddenly our friendship had been like instantly rekindled because we had both independently like found this weird little community and, and this, you know, this, this sort of set of sounds that we both really love. And so we decided like in that moment, we should form a band. And at first we were, you know, we're 14 years old in eighth grade. Like it was like, Oh, it'll be a joke band. And he had a friend who he thought would be a really funny lead singer. And we, we didn't know any drummers. So I was going to program, he had this crappy old synth. It was like, I was going to program drum beats on the synth and play the bass lines on the synth. And we were called stud. <laughs> And it was total like dead milkmen. They might be giants worship. We never recorded anything. It was just like a quote unquote practices. He w- he had like just gotten like a Fender Stratocaster. He was like, could barely play power chords. It was just like goofing around, you know, like we didn't think anything of it, but it made us become like really good friends again. W- that had kind of run its course. And we both had gotten like at that point, even more into that music and discovered even more bands. And then I started high school and got exposed to like a whole other culture from like older guys of, of, of punk and skateboarding. And I was like, I really want to you know do this for real and he was like yeah i do too like i want to form like a real like an actual punk band and so i was like all right i think i know a guy who plays drums i don't think he's into punk but I've, i saw him wearing a metallica shirt one time <laughs> and so i was like you know he might we might be able to convince him i can learn how to play bass it would be that hard and i was really into like this band Firehose and the minutemen and it, there's this bass player named mike watt kind of a underground folk hero and his ba- his bass playing was just like really cool and like they had one of my favorite songs in any skate video ever i want to learn how to play bass so i can like play that guy's bass lines. So I went out and bought like a used bass and got lessons from Ryan had a guitar teacher that was like, Oh, I can teach bass too. You know? So like started taking lessons from him and we convinced this guy, Matt, 
to be our drummer. And at first he was kind of like super skeptical. Cavity. Yeah, like cavernous. He was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know about this whole punk thing. <laughs> but his two favorite bands were, I remember, Public Enemy and Metallica. And I was like, look, dude, it's like the guitar and like drum aggression of Metallica with like the attitude of Public Enemy. And he was just like, all right. Well you know, like, and then we, we started like exposing Matt almost like surreptitiously. We would just like hang out before practice and, and we'd like play him like bands. And every now and then we'd find one he would just like latch onto and we'd be like, all right, cool. Like we're, we're like converting him, you know? And I remember like when the band broke up at the end of high school, I remember he was like, well, one thing I can say for sure is you guys turned me on to a whole world I didn't know existed. And I sure can play a lot faster now. <laughs> so tell me about the gigs you guys would play. Cause I would, you guys would practice after school. We'd go over to Matt's house. Yeah. You guys would be blowing out the windows and like the living room, yeah, yeah. you know, with the drum set and the whole thing. And we'd be all hanging out after school. I mean, that was kind of, again, low fidelity stuff back in the day, right? No devices to really tie you up other than Nintendo. And so, you know, after school, we'd go over to Matt's house, watch you guys practice. We'd see you downtown. You play a couple venues around Fredericksburg. Yeah. And actually the first, the first incarnation of that band, we, we ended up being called Officer Friendly, you know, I remember well. to, to current day, I guess, uh, the sarcasm in that. And our first gig with me, Matt and Ryan playing in a band together, again, pre what it became was a six song set at Honors English end of year pool party. <laughs> which is the least punk thing you will ever hear. Um, <laughs> and we played three covers and three originals. I think the covers were like, sh- I know, should I, should I stay or should I go by the clash was definitely on there. And I don't even remember what the other songs were. I know we had a song called, we, we had a song that did become an officer friendly song called Tony Habib. There was this really terrible sitcom called just the 10 of us that Ryan guys and I used to watch to make fun of. And there was an episode where the kid wants a Tony Habib skateboard. It's supposed to be like a Tony hawk skateboard <laughs> and his dad won't get it for him so he steals it and it's like a moral lesson right and we just thought it was the funniest thing ever that they they couldn't say tony hawk and they decided on tony habib so we had a whole song about like that meant to be like so silly right i remember who it was might have been Kristen. somebody at the party was like man i really expected to hate you guys but it was actually kind of cool <laughs> that's the best compliment i could hope for something about live music, something about just being around it, even if it's a sound check or being around live music, I mean, it adds energy. There's nothing to replace. I mean, you go to two parties and you can pick one that's DJed or with a live band. Chances are the one with the live band, it's just going to add that extra kind of flair to it. Yeah. And and think about too, like everybody's like 14, 15, this is the end of ninth grade. Maybe they've been to like a new kids in the block concert or something, but no one's seen a band that up close before. Right. You know, next to the pool and like, everybody's like right there and the volume is like in their face, you know, even though our amps weren't that great. I'm sure it was the first time anybody had been that close to people playing songs live. Right. Like it was, it was the first time I thought about wearing earplugs to a show. That's for sure. It, yeah. Were you at that? I can't remember. I don't think I was at that show, but just listening to you guys practice. I mean, in, in, in Matt's house was just, oh, oh yeah, my God. Loud. So, I mean, fast forward though. I mean, you have spent steadily since college, you and I, again, we overlapped to JMU, but I mean, we're talking early 2000s up to about now. I mean, what is it? Three bands you've been a part of. You had the touring van, you've, you've traveled up and down the East coast. How did, how did you go from officer friendly in Fredericksburg, Virginia to dropping down and making that investment in a touring bus and just taking your right. music out and about. 
Yeah. So toward the end of high school, so towards the end of Officer Friendly, I started to make some, again, no internet, right? So it was very happenstance. I started to make some connections. I, I went to a lot of shows in the DC punk scene. That's kind of the scene where I really felt like I grew up going to shows because um, we didn't get a lot down in Fredericksburg. It was you know close by. So people would be like, hey, you, should, you have a band. You should bring your band up here. And I'd be like, oh yeah, that'd be cool. Or there was like a guy in Woodbridge who, was, who had a band. He was like, you should come up here and play with us. And I remember just being really intimidated because even though like I thought we were okay, I just felt like, man, like we're still just a bunch of dumb high school kids. Like we can't, we can't go play like live somewhere that our friends don't know us, you know, like they'll hate us. You know, like I just had this like really defeatist attitude about it. And and I think Ryan, to his credit, was like much more like gung-ho about like, yeah, let's do it. You know, but we couldn't, we could never make it happen. Like we couldn't figure out like the transportation or the scheduling. Like we didn't play as much as I wish we could have. And we never got to play really outside of Fredericksburg. I think the one time we tried to, um, somebody got grounded. We couldn't go to the show. I think toward the end of high school, I figured out there there was like this touring circuit of like underground musicians, but I had no idea how to get into it. And so I went to college and, and Ryan and I went to college together. And, and I'm not going to lie, like a big reason that we both picked going to, to JMU was because we could keep playing music together. I mean, it wasn't the only reason, but it was mm. definitely a factor. We immediately formed a band. I remember I convinced my, the hall director, the guy who was like my RA's boss, the guy who was the director of the whole dorm. He was like a graduate student who had been in like bands, super sympathetic. You know, you had to live on dorms at, at JMU your freshman year. I convinced him to let us practice in our suite, cleared it with all my, you know, all the neighbors, right? During like when everybody goes to D hall for, for dinner from like five 30 to seven ish, we're going to, we're going to make a ton of racket soundproofing in the windows, but we're going to keep a, you know, we're going to keep our drum set in here. We're going to like do this, cleared it with, you know, everybody that I need to clear it with. And we did it. You could hear it all the way down at D hall, but we, we formed a band. We figured out a way to practice and quickly like met a lot of other people, you know, our, our age at JMU, there was a bunch of guys from like Roanoke and Lynchburg who they had like figured out how to tour in high school, just like little like week long tours. One of them had even like procured a van. And like, I was like blown away that like 17 and 18 year olds had like figured this out, had a couple bands that fizzled out and then finally had a band toward like the end of or middle end of college. I had been booking a lot of shows at JMU at houses and was able to like basically call in some favors and be like, remember we hooked you up with that show. Like, could we, could we come play Blacksburg or could we come up and play in Arlington or can we come up and play Baltimore? We would host these bands who would come through on tour and I would string together like three day weekends or, you know, a weekend or whatever and kind of got just bitten by the bug. Like I just, you do it a little bit and then you just want more and more because you're like, oh man, what would it be like to go out for a whole week? Or what would it be like to go out longer? And then at some point you're like, man, it sucks to caravan two cars up there. It'd be cool if we could all just ride together. And so that's how the band comes into the picture. And I was actually out of college. You know, I didn't didn't really have any bands that tour. I had one band in college that toured a week and we just did it in two cars. Finally, like the band I had right after college, we got serious enough. And and I think we're fine. I was, I was finally a band that was like good enough. Like I had good enough people in it with me where our songs were decent for the genre we were playing where it was like, let's take this to the next level. Let's, let's pull our money. Let's buy a van. So we bought this, like, this is probably in like 2002. We like bought a 1989 Chevy conversion van. It was like a total, total beater. Like anybody, anybody who's been in touring bands will tell you like conversion vans are the worst. Their transmissions are not made to carry heavy equipment their brakes are not made for it it is cramped compared to like 15 passenger van it was it's just not we we did not think it through but it was afforded it was a thing we could afford we had that van for a while we did actually like a month-long tour of the east coast and midwest all the way down to georgia and all the way up to vermont and then like one or two states over like in a big loop that van somehow made it through all that uh, and then we did a few other like smaller tours um after that then the van kind of died <laughs> <laughs> 
I really wanted to to keep doing that. At that point, I was like in my late, mid to late 20s, but I wasn't done yet. Decided I really wanted to try to, it was hard to find good drummers, especially drummers that played the way I wanted them to play. And being a bass player for so long, you know, like you're kind of locked in with the drummer. And uh, I was like, you know, I can kind of play drums. I kind of taught myself over the years. Like, I'm just going to like buckle down and like really learn how to play drums, buy a kit. I'd kind of pieced together a kit already anyway. Um, so I just kind of fleshed that kit out and with some other gear and really like hunkered down for a couple of years to teach myself drums asking you know friends who were good drummers like technique questions and stuff and then that that ended up being a band called worn in red that was that that band like I, I had people in it who were like way more invested in wanting to tour one of them had been from the previous band skyline awake and and he was like gung-ho about it too one of them was just like super into it. one of them was just like younger and had like more freedom and uh yeah we we decided to it's a few years in we decided to invest in like a 15 passenger like a beast it was much more expensive but found a good used one and yeah that thing took us that thing took us to California and back and you know we eventually ended up touring Europe not in the van we flew over and had a driver and had a different van <laughs> were you guys on a label at the time or were you just kind of independent musicians just I mean was that your goal to try to get signed and and start playing bigger venues and really make this a a, a way to support your family or was it just kind of fun and the love of music I don't know that I well I mean I didn't have a family back then I was dating my my now wife but we, we were carefree and childless and not even married yet at the time that at the time that we were just starting to get some traction. There was a, there's kind of an ethic. I don't know if it's like this anymore. Most of the labels that we were interested in being on wouldn't even like give you the time of day if, if you weren't coming through and like playing like where they were based. They didn't see you like touring because they, they want to make sure that like if they're going to put out your record that you're going to the best way to sell copies is to go play shows mm-hmm. um, back at least back then when physical records were still you know being sold even like 12, 13 years ago. So we were like, look, we just got to go tour. And so we had a couple of smaller labels that were interested in putting some stuff out. So we released some stuff on some pretty small labels that were like friends of ours owned or whatever. And then our goal was to get on this label called, not really our goal, but just like the label that we really admired and would be like the ultimate pinnacle for us was this label called No Idea that had put out some bands we really loved and had a, a pretty big influence in the, the sort of particular subgenre of you know, punk or hardcore or whatever you want to call it that we played. I mean, they were like definitely one of the bigger labels in that world and had a really good reputation. They're based in Gainesville. We started touring a lot down that way, kind of coincidentally at first. And then it was like, well, we should just keep trying to play Gainesville so that eventually like we can get guy who owns the label or co-owns the label VAR to come out and, and see us. And so we played a couple of times and I'd asked my friend Tony, like, hey, do you think VAR can come to this show? And man, don't worry about that. He, he puts on this thing called The Fest. And he's like, you guys have played The Fest. Like he knows your name. Like if he wants to come, he'll come. And I was like, all right, fair enough. And then just total serendipity our friend my friend ryan geist who i played in that band with in high school and we discovered punk rock like sort of like together he ends up working at that record label um, through just like a total parallel series of events and so ryan becomes like our biggest cheerleader in the walls of that label probably like 10 people worked at and we end up um, coming down to play and it's probably like the fifth time we played gainesville in, in maybe like the three or four years we'd been a band. He like talked us up both as a band and his people. And Var was like, all right, all right. I wasn't even sure what Var looked like. We played this show. I remember the show like being pretty good. 
it was definitely like better attended than some of the ones we had played in the past. It was like a pretty full room at a, at a good sounding club at a club we really loved playing. And I remember people being like, man, that was awesome. You know, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I guess, I guess it sounded good out there. VAR came up and was like, Ryan told me you guys recorded a bunch of stuff. When you have like a, a decent mix, like send it to me. I kept in correspondence with him. We finally like had a decent mix, sent it to him. Over the course of like a few months, we just kind of went back and forth. And I was like, we were on like pins and needles because we were like, man, this is like everything we wanted as a band. I, I remember where I was when I got the call, seeing his name come up on my phone and running into like a room to take the call. And he was just like, yeah, man, let's do this. I was just like, hell yeah. <laughs> what year was that? That was like 2009. The fest happened at the end of every October. So he was like, all right, we have four months to get this record pressed so that you guys have copies to sell at fest. Because basically if you have copies to sell at fest, you'll sell a bunch there, right? Somehow made that happen. Like that's pretty quick turnaround for like pressing plants, even, even back then before they were as backlogged as they are now. And because uh, LP, vinyl LP is kind of what, what sold. So we somehow managed to get like the records like barely by the skin of our teeth, like literally the day before I think they arrived in the No Idea offices. No Idea like had built-in publicity arm that got us coverage. The minute that we could say we were on that label and there was like an announcement that went out on like, you know, punknews.org or whatever, suddenly like we had this like profile that we had not had before. And it mm-hmm. was so much easier for me to book tours and suddenly like, oh, cool, the new No Idea band wants to come through and play it matters. And so, yeah, so that band put out two records on that label before we broke up. We did like one really full tour, like a seven week tour of the United States. And we did like a couple of other month tours of large chunks of the United States and then a multiple like long weekends and 10 day kind of runs. And then we did a, a month in Europe early 2011. So like most of the tour we did was like, like end of 2009 through early 2011. So it was like a really busy two year chunk there. When you got to Europe, did they know your music or were they hearing it for the first time? Somewhat, yeah, because um, no idea has a profile over there. So they the record had you know been distributed through through Europe, and then the guy who booked us the tour had a pretty well respected label over there out of Germany, uh, and he was clued in with like that whole scene over there. And he booked us, he got the van, he got the backline, he drove us, and he also put out a split seven inch record with the band we were on tour with just for that tour. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Total DIY um, as a way to get publicity for the tour. When we got to England, that's where if anybody was like kind of into our band, like that's where a few few shows in England where people were like showing up to see us, which was kind of wild. The rest of Europe, not as much. The shows were still pretty well attended. Like I think people had probably like heard of us and were like, oh, cool. I've heard of them. I'll come check them out. Right. So, yeah. So that was cool. Um, I was also this during part of Worn in Red, like I'd say 2008, 2009, 2010, I was in a, also in a band called Forensics. They had like reformed and they, their original drummer didn't want to do it. So I replaced him and that band already had kind of a, a decent following more, a little more in like kind of underground metal scene. And we, and I did a record with them. We would get offered all these like festival shows. We flew over to a couple of festival dates in Belgium, you know, and it was like, yeah, sure. We'll take a long weekend and go play Belgium. Just like, <laughs> just, you know. just zip right on over yeah. and zip on back. <laughs> we were, you know, left on a Thursday, came back on a Monday and the most whirlwind thing ever. But, you know, played this big like outdoor, you know, 6,000 person festival with like, you know, all these bigger, bigger bands. So who are you playing with now? Where are we today in the bands and the touring? And I know you've got a family to manage. So I imagine the touring probably you're not skipping over to Belgium for a three day weekend. <laughs> no, uh, but if the opportunity arose, you know, you never know. Not right now, obviously with COVID, but took some, took a couple of years off of, of playing in bands, had a studio project with my friend Graham, who was in that band forensics with me 
called Caverns of Pine. Originally, it was just going to be a studio project. We attempted, we actually ended up forming a live band. We, we put out a record in 2018 called Dissociate. And that's like pretty heavy subject matter and, and, and like loud, you know, loud music. That came out in... 2018, uh, didn't ever think it was going to do do it live. Ended up having some people who were interested in helping me to do it live. Put together a live band to try to do a live performance of it as a benefit show this past March. And it was literally the night that everything mm. shut down because of COVID. So that project kind of still exists. And I might pick up and, and write some more songs for that at some point, uh, either by myself or in collaboration with some of the same people. I'm, I play drums in a band called Washers that is a lot of fun. That's like way more kind of pop oriented, but has more kind of talking heads, wipers, Ramones kind of territory mm. than, than, than like any kind of hardcore influence. Like there's no screaming. It's super melodic. It's fun. We've talked about, you know, before all this happened, we've talked about doing like little three-day East Coast runs. Once we have a new record that is ready to be released, we just have to figure out the timing of that. We, we're actually supposed to play the the Fest, that thing in Florida this year, but that got postponed to next year. The Fest. It sounds like an, a, an early name for one of your bands that you would you would pick back in the day, like Stud The Fest <laughs> now. Yeah. Well, that was kind of Tony's idea was to, you know, there's all these like fests and he was like, let's just, I'm just going to call it the fest. And that's got a pretty big following. That That's always a really good time. And it's been a few years since I've been down there. And then I sing in a, <laughs> a tribute band. That's a Operation Ivy tribute band that we play a benefit show about once, maybe twice a year, not a recording thing. We just kind of do that for fun. Sure. So yeah, that's all my current musical projects. Um, don't really do any actual touring anymore because have a, you know, a job and a family and trying to, trying to keep it stable. Well, so many years have passed. This has been great just catching back up on everything and hearing about that because, again, this world of touring and music and, I mean, multi-instrumentalist, lyricist, kind of knew you had all that talent, but just wasn't aware of all the, the roads traveled over the last 20 plus years. This is uh, this has been awesome catching back up and, and learning your story from a music standpoint. I guess it started with skating and kind of developed that community and then the music that went with it and then making it your own. Yeah, man. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. So, uh, well, great. Well, we got to do it again and uh, we'll be keeping in touch. Cool, man. Till next time from the pod of DC, I'm your host, Rick Bernstein. We'll talk soon.